Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in today. Today's episode is brought to you by Bluefish Design in Tempe, Arizona. Bluefish Design is a full-service marketing ad agency. They can help you with your logos, your branding, your rebranding, your interactive and digital media, whatever it takes to take your company to the next level. There are amazing people over there. Check them out online, www.bluefish.com. That's B-L-U-F-I-S-H.com. And now for today's episode. This is all about actually the wines we should have drank on Easter. We talked about mimosas. We talked about rosés. We talked about overall wine stats in America. It was actually a super informative episode, and we know you guys are going to enjoy it. So please enjoy today's episode. Uh, check us out on Instagram, too, and check us out on Facebook. We have a couple extra pages we started. You can follow our journeys. Also, you can ask us questions, so don't be afraid to reach out at any time. Thank you very much. Enjoy the show. Probably should have done rosés for Easter. Probably. I mean, I think that's kind of becoming like the Easter wine now, besides mimosas. I was going to say mimosas would have been the one I've assumed. I feel like for Easter, being that it's brunch, brunch is always associated with, obviously, uh, mimosas. That might have been the one, but how are we going to do an entire episode on mimosas? Maybe like a Bellini, too? I guess. I guess you could do something along the lines of Cava, Prosecco, Champagne. You could do different sparkling wines in it and see how they change. Yeah, and different qualities of orange juices. <laughs> That'll actually be a fun episode. Do a, a mimosa-based episode with different OJs and different sparkling wines from around the world to see which one you know is the best. What's well, something we've talked about, too, is though... In the business is what works best for a mimosa, whether it's because something like kava has big fat bubbles in it. And I like kava better in mimosas than Prosecco or a cheap sparkling wine. Um, something with the, the large bubbles that holds up a little better. Yeah. Where sometimes Prosecco, I'd rather just drink Prosecco straight. Yeah. I mean, if it's a good tasting sparkling anything, it's fine the way that it is. Because I think when you have a Prosecco that has really, really, really fine bubbles... It kind of just integrates a little too much with the orange juice, whereas when you have big fat bubbles, it keeps it nice and lively. I find it interesting that between the three like categories of booze, beer, wine, and liquor, how you don't mix anything with beer, not that I can think of. Wine, you pretty much only mix sparkling with something, in this case, uh, orange juice, or in some case, I've seen hibiscus for some, or like, uh, like a peach bellini and things like that. But liquor... I'd bet I'd be willing to bet more people mix liquor than they actually just drink it straight. Like the people who just drink a straight scotch or a tequila, nine times out of ten, it's probably mixed. Like a tequila or vodka for sure. Nobody's there's very few people I bet out there who are not just straight vodka drinkers. So it's a weird spectrum of what you blend into what you're drinking. Yeah, you're right. Only the people that do like bloody beers. I know people that do that. Like yeah, Clamato. Yeah, yeah, they'll mix that in with like a cheap beer kind of thing, but. I never had, I never really thought of mixing beers. Yeah, because every drink that has a name is a cocktail. And then when it comes to wine, all it is is mimosa. Because I can't think of anything else off the top of my head that's a blend of something from wine. I don't know white wine gets mixed to anything that's called a drink or like a white wine spritzer. Yeah, that's, that's that, about it. That's what I was kind of thinking is like stuff along the lines of spritzers or they have like Cure Royales, but they're still liquor then mixed with bubbles in a Cure Royale. It's yeah. Like, it's like Chambord and Champagne. See, I've seen those where they float like some champagne, but instead of using like a soda, they use a champagne to liven it up. That's 
that's still to me not like it's a wine. Like a, a mimosa is straight up 90% sparkling wine. And it just, uh, the orange juice kind of there for the splash of coloring. That's the problem people sometimes do with mimosas is they use too much orange juice. So much orange it juice. It should be 80%, 85% orange juice. Or sorry, 80, <laughs> yeah, 80% orange juice. Stri- Damn. Strike that, reverse it. I'm not going to your bar. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's what people are doing wrong. They're putting too much orange juice in it. It should be mostly bu- uh, bubbles and then a little bit of OJ. Just... Yeah, I treat it like it's uh, the OJ is there for coloring and just a little bit to, if it's a cheap sparkling wine, to kind of add acidity to it. So it kind of masks maybe some sugar in it. Because most of the time when you get a mimosa from a restaurant, they're buying the most inexpensive, like $2 wholesale bottle they can. Crap. Because they're not going to give you... It, the average person who walks to a store might still buy that $10 Prosecco that's actually pretty decent or something and then put mimosas into it. And if you're extraordinarily rich, I imagine they're using like real high-end champagnes. I'm not talking Cristal or Dom or anything. I know there's maybe a few people who do, but a restaurant for sure is giving you the absolute cheapest sugary, sparkling wine they can get their hands on so that they can make a better bottom line. Yes. Um, in Spain, they mix Tempranillo wine with Coca-Cola. It's called the Calamocho. Calamocha, Calamocho. I think it's Calamocho. And that's a very popular drink amongst youngsters and the younger crowd millennials in Spain. Are we talking youngsters like teenagers? No, like, no, no. Like, like a 20... young, yes. Okay. A millennial generation kind of thing. Okay. I mean, I'd probably say 18 to 28. I could see like grandparents or something and, you know, European countries or parents in general pouring their kid like a little glass of wine and then diluting it with a Coke or a Sprite or something like that because... I know my grandparents used to like let me drink wine, but it would be an ounce pour. Like it would just be like, here, you can taste it. I always hated when they would give me wine. It, it had that, that just grapey, gross. I never liked it. And ironically, I love it, but you know. <laughs> a lot of the Europeans, they water it down. You use like a, you know, 80 20, 80% water, 20% wine, and let yeah. the kids drink it a little bit here and there. Yeah, I teach them how to get into it a little bit. So I saw a stat a couple of years ago. It was like the top drinking holidays in the United States, like based on overall consumption. And in the top five was Easter. And I was shocked. And we actually had debate at this restaurant about why is Easter such a drinking holiday? I Honestly, it's probably because it starts in the beginning of the day and just goes all day. Like, like Christmas, too. So what I'm saying is like, so Easter morning, you're up at 10 o'clock because you go to brunch. And being brunches, most people will drink, you know, rosa, or excuse me, mimosa, sparkling wines and things like that. Or and you, then, you go to church and you have a little... Does that count? Does the, <laughs> yes. If that's the case, then definitely. That is wine, day. I guess. But it's like an all day. Then you might go to a different family member's something for night. And then I'd also imagine that everybody gets Monday off too. <laughs> so people will keep drinking through Sunday night. Yeah. Thanksgiving obviously makes sense because... You know, your family's in town and you're like, oh, I just want to drink. I don't want to deal with everybody. That's what I think it is. I think people that don't normally drink, like in our business, people like you and I and our friends, we don't necessarily need an excuse to drink. I mean, we can drink any night of the week. But people that drink four nights a year, five nights a year, and that's it, often it will be on Easter because it's the day you're with the family. And some people just need to have a couple. They need to lubricate to hang out with the family. It's so funny, man, that we tolerate family in the way that we do. Because if you had friends that were really crappy, you get rid of them. But if it's family, like, well, it's family. Keep going. And you see it by having the biggest holidays of drinking is Thanksgiving, Christmas, Easter. And what's the other one? Probably like July 4th, I imagine, just because, you know, everybody's drinking all the beer that they can on that day. Yes, yeah, so no, there's a lot of people that don't drink on that day, too. There's a lot of people that aren't necessarily going out and partying. A lot of people might just be hanging around and setting off fireworks at night and barbecuing or going out to the lake. And maybe there is an alcohol involved always in 4th of July. 
I, it's blowing my mind because I I can't imagine any of my friends being sober on July Fourth. <laughs> and I'm not talking about just our friends. I'm literally yeah, thinking know, about just, the, yeah. the average person who drinks four days a year on Easter Sunday. They're stuck with family members they can't stand, and it's probably even worse now with politics and the divided families the way it's going on. And someone's probably like, "That's it. I'd I like need to a drink." I'd like to see the swing too of how involved kids are. If that. If you don't have kids and now you're with a family with like who has a lot of kids, if you drink more because now you're on so many kids and you got to be a little bit off or whatever, and or they're gonna, that's the thing too is yeah, you're around maybe 20 screaming kids around all your, you know, you're the one family member that doesn't have kids yet, and all your brothers and sisters have kids, and grandma and grandpa are giving you shit. Why for don't not... you have kids? When are you gonna have kids? Yes, and then you look around at all these snotty nosed little brats running around and screaming. You're like, oh, give me a drink. I love when Kirti was on, and she was talking about how her family was like, we want you to marry a very specific uh, Indian man. Then it was like, we just want you to marry any Indian man. Then it was like, God, we just want you to marry any man. <laughs> at some point, <laughs> that's what I'm thinking about right now. Because like, you'd have the family members that you're young and early like oh i can't wait for you to find a wife and have some kids then you get a little older like well we can't wait for you to find a wife and hopefully have kids and it's like please come on keep moving i think <laughs> do my, something yeah my mom finally gave up asking me she literally every week for probably 18 years asked me about you know when are you getting married when are you having kids when are you give me grandbabies my mom stopped asking me that a while ago but she always does the she definitely wants the grandkids things but she's not pushy but what she does is she'll like walk past and goes oh look how adorable that is Oh, man, it would just be so much fun to have a grandkid. You just don't even know. Like, she does, like, the subtle little things that aren't so subtle. <laughs> There's no subtlety in my mother. I can imagine. Zero. Yeah. Man, your sister's going to be... <laughs> she's she's, she's going to have all the problem. <laughs> well, she's she's the hope. Well, when my sister starts having kids, oh, my God, my mom's going to spoil those kids like you wouldn't believe. I'm, God, my sister got a dog, and my mom spoils that dog more than she spoils me. Oh, yeah. I imagine that for sure. Yeah, I mean... My mom would be the same way. If I had a kid, she'd be like, well, I'm moving into your house. I'm like, ah, crap. In Built-in babysitter. Built-in babysitter. I'm okay with that, though. Right? I'm like, mom, you take care of this kid for a while. It's really funny that we did drink Barbaresco on Easter, but now the day after, we're drinking rosé. Yeah, right. It doesn't really make sense. Plus, we're drinking it at night. Actually, we're breaking all the rules now. We're drinking rosé with the sundown at night. At night. Because people think of rosé as a daytime kind of thing. Yeah, but we're but for us, it's a... It's a weather-based thing, like a hot, cold kind of a thing. And being that in Arizona, we're hitting 90s now. It's definitely time for rosés. I know. I was on the road a couple of months ago, and somebody was drinking rosé at a bar, and it was a cold-weather state. <laughs> I, I was like, on the road? Like, you were driving, and you looked oh, over, no, and there no. was a guy drinking? <laughs> and I'm like, work trip kind of thing. And I said something to somebody drinking rosé, and she was like, you can drink rosé any time of the year. She's like, forget that. She's like, I drink it all winter long. Yeah. It's crazy. It's it's treated like it's this specialty drink when the reality is it is. It's it's a perfect category of wine. It's white, rosé, and red. And then obviously sparkling can be its own thing. But, you know, I mean, everybody I've ever had in the winery, they assume for the most part for the last like 10 years was always, oh, is it sweet? And yes, I obviously make one because it pays the bills and stuff. But more and more I'm seeing is people are drifting into their they're really liking the dry style rosé. And that category has just it's exploded in America more than probably I'd think any other wine category. I think people need to mention the varietal or the type of rosé more because you can't just say red wines. Oh, I'm a red wine drinker. Fuck, there's how many thousands of types yeah. of red wine? I'm a white wine drinker. Well, there's all those types. Then rosé, people think of rosé as one thing. It's rosé. Yeah. And it's not. There are so many different styles depending on what type of grape it comes from. Unfortunately, as we know, the... 
the older people often think of rosé as being nothing but white Zivendel, like a sweet wine. Yeah, they think of it in the term of uh, that people use pretty much just in America as a blush. And blush basically means that this is going to be sweet. And they do think of white Zin. And anybody who's ever tried, they went, oh, I guess I'll try a rosé at a party. Like, you know, if you're the new, if you're a guy who just goes to a party and all they had was a rosé and you're like, well, I've never had one. Let me try it. The odds are you probably drank a white Zin. And they went, oh, God, I never want to drink rosé because it was sweet. Because they never had a chance to try a Provence rosé or a really made Oregon rosé or something like that. I mean, I poured a fantastic rosé out at Devour Food Festival about eight years ago. And it was, I had to twist people's arms to try it. People would come up to the table like, oh, what do you got? I'm like, oh, you got to try this rosé. Oh, no, I don't like rosés. I don't like sweet wines. Literally, yeah. I had to hold people's mouths open and pour it down their throat to get them to try it. That'd be really fun to do. Treat them like a duck and just, you know, force it. <laughs> but, but blow the whistle like, blow a, the whistle. like, like tequila in Mexico. <laughs> Maybe that's what they need to do is they need to have a guy walk around with like rosé bottles and some holsters, <laughs> blow a whistle, two girls come out and start swinging rosé around and just pouring it on people. When, when their mouth is full, you plug their nose and shake their head. Like they shake do their them, head. <laughs> like they do the Mexican tequila. <laughs> but, but it was so fun to do that event because people would, I'd force them to try it and then they go, oh my God, this is amazing. And they go and grab 10 of their friends. And they come back like, guys, you have to try this. You have to try this. And the person next to me like, oh, I don't like sweet wines. No, no, it's no, not no, it's not yeah. that style. And it's breaking down that perception. And we we're earlier tonight, we were actually talking about demographics across the country and how it's different depending on what state you're in. Arizona is very a unique demographic as we're always a couple of years behind a lot of the trends in the major cities. For being a major city, we're always a few years behind. Yeah. And rosés were a tough sellout here five years ago when they were an easy sell in Washington and Oregon. I remember going up to Oregon and you go to a wine or a restaurant, the wine list would have six rosés or five rosés on it. They were all current vintage, brand new. I'd say, oh, I want this one. Oh, you know what? We're already sold out of it. Already sold out. Oh, I'll take this one. Uh, let me see. I think we might be out sold out of that one too. In Arizona, I would go to a restaurant. The rosé on the list is two years old. The bottle was open six months ago and they're yep. still trying to pour out of it. I mean, people just didn't get it. It was so tough to sell. We have a restaurateur here that got so fed up with people not ordering rosé. He took a month, about five years ago, and made his wine list 100% rosés. Yeah, I love that. He put 30 rosés by the glass on his menu or whatever it was. But there were so many different styles. If you were someone who likes a Cabernet Sauvignon or a bigger, bolder wine, he had a style of rosé that was a bigger, bolder rosé. If you wanted something that was lighter, he had the Provence style. He had the Nebbiolos. He had... For me, he was picking up the uh, Negro Amaro Rosé that was deep yeah. and dark, the Cantale. Was that the, yeah, the Cantale. And Dude, that, the Aglianico, I couldn't believe, was a Rosé. Yeah, I mean, that's a big style Rosé. I mean, those wines are not your typical Rosés where pe that people think about, you know? Crazy thing is how refreshing they are, too. They really are. I mean, I've had, a, I think, one of the, my favorite ones that I'd had in the last couple of years. And I, only, I, I didn't get it only because the pricing was just like ludicrously high for it. But uh, it was a Howe Mountain Rosé Cab. And I don't know how the style he was even made it, but I think it was like an $80 bottle. And it was one of the tastiest rosés I'd ever had. But it wasn't what you'd think of a rosé. There was a dark red, almost ruby characteristic to it. So it's not red. It's not like Pinot Noir or Gamay or anything. It was still definitely a rosé, but it had a lot of color to it. So and it was so tasty, man. It was just it was just, just too expensive. And this is what happened actually a couple of years ago out here, is, or around the country, is that rosé is now growing and growing and growing and you know when you have a when you only have a one half of one percent of the market and you grow 300 percent 
you're still barely at one half of 1%. Yeah. Whereas if you have 10% and you grow 300%, now you have 30% market share. So people always say like, oh, Rosé as a category has grown 500%. Well, you're still just a little bit. Yeah. However, with the way it's been growing the last couple of years, every producer would make, say, 50 cases of Rosé. A lot of time it would be wine club only. They release yes. a little bit here. They forced it upon people. Now... Instead of making one barrel or having one like 50 cases, now people are having, oh, I made 2,000 cases this year, and they're going to try and sell it. And unfortunately, the market has become saturated really, really fast with it. Which is, it's interesting, though. I think that's actually good, only because, you know, the market's saturated with Shard, Cab, and a few other, you know, like Pinot Noir. And the good, the good producers and the great vineyards rise to the top obviously and they have all the stuff so now you have your ten dollar shard to your what was, what was the one we said the other day 450 bucks and it's all there rosé i've seen the hundred dollar bottles of rosé now sparkling's different I, i'm not going to count like the doms or uh, runard or anything but uh, a muse a moose bouche one they made an 80 dollar rosé uh, Bandol is like a $40 one. And granted, that's a huge French producer. But I've seen a lot of the boutique guys make a $100 rosé. I think and I, I'm very much probably wrong on this one, but I'm only going to use this one as an example. If Screaming Eagle releases a rosé, that bottle's $200 right out of the gate, and it sells out immediately. I guarantee it just because of the name. Also, because... That fruit is coming off a vineyard that they could have used into their Cabernet Sauvignon. They could have used it into one of their other wines. I bet I would bet they wouldn't even do it. They'd probably take it from Sonoma Coast or somewhere and make a Pinot Noir wine, and people would still buy it anyways. It doesn't have to come out of their vineyard. They could just you know produce and bottle it from somebody else. I mean, there's three or four different ways you can make rosé. I mean, that's the other thing. It's not just exactly one way to make it. Yeah, I mean, the multiple different options that people have on how they want to do it changes, obviously, the style of rosé that you have. So when I was making it, uh, I did it the normal style where, so when you get, this is this is for people who don't know how wine is done. So oh, you all, added food coloring? Yeah, I have food coloring, you know, throwing a little <laughs> different colors here and there, get what I want, dye, yeah, the chemically stuff. So all wine is actually white wine. Uh, you press and squeeze Cabernet, Pinot Noir, Merlot, whatever, white juice is coming out. I mean, it's yellow, but it's it's a white wine. So the way that it works for to get the coloring out is you let the grapes macerate. So when you press and squeeze the grapes, you put it into your tank, and that juice will slowly leach the coloring out of the grapes. Now, depending upon the thickness of the skin gives you different coloring. If you're doing Cabernet, Malbec, you get a really dark colors. You have Sagrantino, it's dark as night. Petite Syrah, dark as night. You have a thin skin grape like Pinot Noir, it obviously comes out lighter. So to make a rosé, depending on who's doing it, they could do it for a couple hours, up to about 24 hours-ish, and you get a very, very light salmon pink hue. If you press it hard enough, it kind of leaches some colors up to, I've seen a lot more California tends to be in the higher red-ish category because I think people like the perception of that darker red versus Provence. I mean, we're looking at this one right here. It's it's salmon. It's a light, light, light salmon-ish color. And the Nebbiolo is probably right in between. It's actually pink. See, I buy Rosé Bon Color. That's my, no matter where it's made in the world, I typically look at it and I say, that's the color. If I look at a shelf and there's 40 Rosés from all over the world, I grab the one that's the closest to that pale salmon orange color. So it's interesting that you say that. So most people do that. That's why 
Americans tend to add, not add color, they just let it macerate a little longer. But here's a cool little thing. So they did a few tests on this one where they put the rosé into those black glasses so you don't know what you're drinking. And while everybody purchased more of that darker rosé color, by the time they got done with a few hundred people on a blind taste, the vast majority of people bought the lightest skin color ones by the time the show was done. That would be interesting. I've actually never done that where I, I tried a wine in a glass that I couldn't see through. Or we did a tasting for people once where we blindfolded them and people were actually having trouble telling you if it was red, red or white. Yeah. It was really unique. There are some grapes that you can see. They're like, I, I don't know what this is. <laughs> you, you remove the perception and you're like, oh my God, is that red or white? I can't tell. It's a little tannic. It's a little this, that. Yeah. There's, so there's flavors I didn't expect in this. I've had Chardonnay my whole life. This isn't oaky buttery. I don't know what to go with this one. But I think you know, there, there's a number of different factors on why rosé is becoming more and more popular now. I mean, I think the main reason is that I've always thought it's just, it's good, it's delicious, it's refreshing. You don't want to drink, oh, it's Arizona, it's 110 degrees out, my air conditioning's already been on for a week. <laughs> yeah, right. I don't want to come in from a hot day and pour a glass of Cabernet. It doesn't sound good, Doesn't it's not refreshing. And sometimes I just don't want white wine. Sometimes I want that hybrid. And that yeah. really is what this is. It's it's a... There's a fruity characteristic to some rosés. I mean, something like Provence, it's very much in the middle. Like, they could be a little dry. They, you know, they're not really fruity. They're not sweet. But there's more character to it than your standard white wine. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. And, I, and that's kind of the nice thing about this is you really can just sit anywhere. And honestly, in my opinion, I think it's one of the top food pairs. I know we talk about with Star- Barkling. I think rosé pairs with any food, no matter what it is. That'd be fun to do an all-rosé pairing some night. Do four different rosés, do a Provence, do a Sangiovese, do a Cabernet, and then... Well, I think people do need to treat it like it's its own category. Instead of just, oh, I'm just going to drink a rosé to sit on the porch or whatever. Actually treat it like it's whether it's white wine or red wine. Actually put it into a real category. To have finally said, do you want red wine or white wine? I'd like, I would, I'd like to... Um, I, I'm sure some do it, but I'd like to have servers come up and be like, oh, would you like white wine, rosé, or red wine? And go from there. Like, okay, cool. I have an option of what are your rosés? Do you have a huge menu of it? And, you know, I, I've i had a rosé with a big-ass steak, and honestly, it actually went nicely with it. <laughs> it is unfortunate because you think about it. If, if somebody came up to me at a restaurant and said, do you want red or white? And I said, red. Okay, here's our red list. Do you want Cabernet, Merlot, Pinot? Where they say, oh, I want rosé. Great. I'll be right back with the rosé. I'll be back with the rosé. Yeah. <laughs> like, there's no other options. Yeah. You get one. And that's... And I'd be willing to bet that seven out of 10 restaurants, if you were to get a rosé, if you were to just blindly say, just bring me your rosé, they have Behringer or Sutter Home or whatever is White Zinfandel. Not a high-end restaurant will have, you know, seven to 10 on there. They're getting, it's, with the amount that's being made by the producers and the amount that sales reps are out there showing them and pushing them, you're going to start seeing more and more on the list. You got, it's inevitable. I mean, yeah, reps right now, they're getting they're given quotas like hey you have to sell some of this because we bought it we it's going to be gone next year because often rosé is not something you're going to sit around if i was a distributor and i bought all of the 13 vintage of Brunello and i didn't sell it this year and the 14 came out and i bought the 14 it's okay i'm not yeah. going to freak out as long as we i can pay our bills if we have 13 and 14 in the warehouse not a big deal rosé if you just got your 18s you're still sitting on 17s not good. Which so I, this is a question for you, only because I have never had a rosé that I've made that I kept enough cellared and stored. I usually just try to push mine. I do have one that you and I will drink one day, and I'm actually a little nervous about it. We'll see. But I've had uh, a few rosés that they didn't release for like three or four years, 
and then they put it out. So there is one that we drank recently, not you and I, but like I drank with a friend, and it was 2014, and they just released it. And honestly, I thought when he poured it, I was like, what? He's pouring me a 2014. This is going to suck, man. Like, why'd you hold it on? Like, it shouldn't be. And he goes, no, 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 I'm telling you, this is meant to age. Like, you have to treat it like a, you would a burgundy. It can age. And it makes sense. It still has all the acidity that you want. And it even has a little bit of tannin to it to maybe help preserve it a little bit. So why shouldn't a rosé age for four, five, six years? Well, there's that. Or it doesn't matter. You just want to drink it now because it's fruity and delicious. There is that one Spanish rosé that has the the netting around it that they released that after like 12 years or 15 yeah. years it comes out. So it's a little different. So f- quick little story. We picked up a, a brand from uh, Santa Rita Hills, Santa Ynez area. And when they picked it up, excuse me, I think it's Star Rita Hills. Hills. <laughs> so they transferred from one distributor to us. And when they picked up all the product, they transferred all the product to us. And there was some rosé in there. The rosé happened to be about four years old. He just said, I'm not going to charge you guys for it. Just find a way to make it disappear. We had about 20 cases of it. It was a little tinny. It was actually drinking pretty good after all those years. I gave a bunch to chefs to do stuff with, go cook with this, go do that. I had about a half a case I brought to Thanksgiving dinner. And I always say rosé is the perfect wine for Thanksgiving. I was a little nervous because, once again, this was a four- or five-year-old rosé at this point. Hands down, it was the most popular. I had Barolos. I had Magnums. I had Brunello. I had Cab. I mean, I brought a case of random fantastic wine. The next year, every phone call I got said, are you bringing that rosé again? Are you bringing that rosé again? (laughs) The four or five-year-old rosé that was a little over the top that they gave us for free was the most popular wine at Thanksgiving dinner. Yeah. Which, you know, two things. You get A, that everybody's got really cool palates sometimes, and you could take the oddball one and it'll win for the night. And uh, the fact of the matter is, I think think there's a little bit of an intriguing factor to rosé because everybody who drinks wine or is getting into wine starts on red or white or whatever. But rosé is always the last thing that a wine drinker gets into. And I'm not talking professional, but I think if, oh, I like to drink red wine, I like my cabs, and I like my Merlots, I like my Pinot, well, I guess I'll start trying Chardonnays, and I'll try a Pinot Gris. You kind of swing. The rosé is the very last one you're going to try of all that. Nobody, I don't know anybody, and I guarantee I will never really meet anybody that says, I got into drinking wine because I started drinking rosé. I think it's going to change, though. I think this is the millennials. I think the millennials are this is they're going to be their gateway I, I drug. I can see that. I could absolutely see that this is eventually with, especially in a hot climate area like Arizona, where rosé hits the market all year long. Because nobody, for the most part, if you're taking all 350 million Americans as consumers and pretending they all drink wine, anybody like north of the Mason-Dixon line is not going to be drinking rosé most of the year. They'll drink it for summertime or if somebody gets to them. But you take people from California, Washington, and Oregon, Arizona, Texas, I would be willing to bet Texas rosé is going to be blowing up once it kind of gets up and running. And actually, one of the best rosés I think I had had recently was from Denver, of all places. Like produced in Denver? Produced and bottled and everything in Denver. There's a place, uh, there's a valley just south of, I think it's Wyoming that's right above it. And they're doing a lot of red wines, and uh, they had a fantastic. It was ten bucks, and it was honestly delicious rosé. So, what are you checking out? No, so I was trying to remember the name of that one Spanish one that's got the netting around it. We've had the the Rioja from them, and some Isn't of the like wines. Like Tinto something, and you can I, I can picture it. Like I, yes. I can see the gold netting on it, but and whenever you see the rosé, it's like really, it's kind of funky. I mean, it's always like eight years old or so, and it's fantastic. 
So when I was Googling that, it was actually funny was it came up with this article that said these are the top 25 rosés produced in for this vintage. And number nine on the list is the one we're drinking. Oh, wow. Very cool. <laughs> That's why I kind of shut up for a second. Usually I don't Google stuff when we're on the uh, podcast This or was a Todd Sawyer recommended one, so clearly he knows uh, his... His taste, yeah. obviously. I was originally going to get that Chocolini. Remember that one we drank a while yeah, ago? Yeah. And uh, did I say that right? Chocolini? And, uh, it starts so with an X. Yeah, it starts with <laughs> T. It starts with a T. TX, yeah, TX, yeah. TX. So we have that one. We'll drink that another day. We'll do, we should do more rosé episodes. We'll treat it like real wine. I think we should. But it is real wine. It is real wine. But uh, so I, I didn't pull that one. I wanted to get a Provence one because I kind of want to support France a little bit since the country is literally on fire between Notre Dame, the every barrel that's trying to keep Burgundy going. And then that there was a warehouse that had 2 million bottles in it and the whole thing burned to the ground. So give a, give a little extra money towards them and buy some Provence. Plus Provence is one of the most famous places in the world for Rosé. So little staff for you, one of the most Instagram wines, Varietals hashtags right now is hashtag rose. Uh, uh, excuse me, brose. <laughs> that's another one. Well, that's that's and froze. Yeah, that's kind of the spawn off that's happening right now. There's a bunch of dudes. We did it uh, uh, two years ago. A whole bunch of us said, "Hey, we're gonna have our summer of brose." Summer just, brose, and we drank brose all summer long. Yeah. That's like a bunch of big meathead dudes sitting around drinking rose on a Saturday afternoon. You know what else helped a little bit? Probably was when uh, Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt had yes. their winery. It's Gotta be. I guarantee if it's on that list, it's probably, it's definitely within the top 25, most likely, if it's not number one. I, I love it, actually. Mirabelle's fantastic producer. I mean, they partnered with it's a French producer. Pricing. It's great price. And that was a, kind of the start of Rosé getting some more mainstream popularity. Now you have other celebrities putting their names on it. People like Drew Barrymore is putting her name on a Rosé. Yeah. And as much as I'm not going to buy it because of it, there's a huge part of the population that will buy it for that reason. Yeah. I will say it's really nice because the one that... uh Bragelina own Bragelina. They, it doesn't say their name anywhere on it. Nowhere. The only thing I've ever seen that connected them to is they were on the cover of Spectator magazine, and it had. Oh, I've seen that one. Yeah, yeah, that's the only time I've ever heard of. They they don't sell it that way. It's not promoted that way. It's just they. It have comes to, in a unique bottle too. So on the shelving, you can immediately kind of grasp because it's got that fat body bottle it's definitely not going to fit in your wine fridge which by the way so here's a conspiracy theory i want to dive down i think certain companies are making bottles impossible to store to force you to drink it so for instance that miraval is a fat ugly bottle that you can't put into your shelving can't really stick it in your fridge therefore you got to drink it sooner than later so when it comes to making rosé there's really three major ways to make it you did talk about like the maceration method, which is typically they will let it sit for a very short period of time on the skins. Depending on how much color they want, they'll pull it off. Usually it's roughly between two and 20 hours. The faster you pull it off, the less color it has. The longer it sits, the more color the more it has. Color pretty simple. What I consider the best rosés and the ones I've sold that was a selling point were the Sanyi method. Okay, so you say it how? Sanyi. Sanyi. That's the appropriate way? Because yes. I always say sangui, and I know that's not right, no, but I had heard it from not French producers. Because if anybody from France is listening to this, they just they want to kill me right now. But I heard it from Spanish and Italian. They said it weird. Phonetically, it'd be like S-A-N-Y-E-E. -E. Probably. So sangui. Sanyi. Sanyi. Yeah. So, so essentially, that's when you bring all your grapes in and you put them inside of your, your big barrel or your big uh, holding vessel. Yeah, your fermentation and, tank. And naturally, the weight will start to crush them. And it's also known as a bleed-off method or like a bleed method. 
and a small amount of the grapes or the juice will actually bleed off the bottom. So what some producers do is they bring it all in, they let it kind of settle and it will bleed off. They use the bleed off to make the rosé and it's very, very special juice at that point because it's been, it hasn't been crushed. It's just naturally bled and it's just the way it's done. And then everything else, they will actually crush and macerate into their normal wines. So the interesting thing about that is there's two things is one, we call that the free, in winemaking, it's the free run. And the free run juice is usually your best juice. Yes. It's what everybody uses to go into their you know most expensive bottle. So the fact that they're making rosés from that is really unique. The interesting thing about that, and I never did this method, because when I used certain red grapes to make my rosé, I treated those red grapes as being inferior to the wine I wanted. So therefore, I made a rosé. These ones, they go in and they take their, we'll use cab as an example. They say, man, that cab is great. Can't wait to make red wine. But uh, I want it more concentrated. So yeah, they'll run that off. They'll make the rosé from there. And now that the actual normal red that they're making is even more concentrated because now you have less juice in that tank. More skin and it's contact. concentrating all that skin contact. Yeah. It's a, it's a really unique method. And I had seen something where, uh, so in, I believe it's Provence, the head... There's like a guy, like the uh, the guy from Puritori, the what are you, the consortio, uh, Aldovaca. Yeah, so he's a head guy who determines. There's a Provence rosé guy who does this, and he doesn't believe that that's the appropriate way to do it, and he doesn't like it. He says if you're gonna make rosé, make it from the grapes, and that's it. Like those grapes are used for rosé; they're not meant to have a little excess become rosé, and then you make a red. So it's clearly a controversial thing based upon who does it. I think some grapes also are so tannic; they have such aggressive skins. You it's tougher to make them through a maceration method because even after two or three or four hours, you're going to get so much color, it's going to end up so dark. I believe... Yeah, you do that with a Tanat. I don't think I've ever seen a Tanat rosé. Well, I believe uh, Terrador de Palo, their Alianico rosé is free run. It's it's also really dark for a rosé. Depends on the vintage. Uh, they did a vintage when I was in Vinitaly or Provine two years ago, and it was it looked like Provence, and I'd never seen it so light. It was the, I commented, and she, they had a weird vintage also. Okay. But it was really strange. It was, there's, the way they do it and the way it's free run off, it changes colors a lot. If you do a maceration method, I think you can adjust, you can make it so every year it's very similar on color. Yeah, if you do it that way, you can absolutely. Where something like a dark grape along the lines of Alianico, and you bleed off the free run and do it, some years it might be kind of pink, some years it's going to be kind of pale, some years it's going to be deep. And it so... That for a wine maker must be really difficult for those 12 hours because you've got to constantly be going back to your tank to where's the color? Where's the color? Where's the color? Oh, there's the color I want and run it off. But here's the crazy thing. And you've seen this because you took me to Sexton and I've known this obviously from winemaking. But when you pull that juice out before you filter it and find it and everything, it is it's real vibrant. It's almost neon kind of red. Now, the second you add the sulfites and filter it out, it's going to drastically change that color. And you were, so you could have a dark color and make it pale if you really want to. You were there during cold stabilization, too, if I remember right. Yes. Yeah. That tank was almost, it was basically freezing at that yeah, point. Yeah, it, it has a layer of ice on the outside, which yeah. is really unique the way they do that. So you saw how crazy, not fuchsia, but, you know, like the color was very, very unique. And then later on, when it was actually dead and in bottle, it, it almost looked like they stripped like 80% of the coloring out of it. Well, this is what Sexton did for us a couple years ago with it, was that when it came out, it was so deep and dark and red, I said, I can't sell this. This isn't what we want. This isn't the style of rosé that we're looking for to sell to the public. And he said, I could pass it through a charcoal filter. Charcoal. 
and it won't adjust the flavor. He goes, if you do a little bit, it will actually bleed the color off. It takes some of the color off. It'll end up the color you want. If you overdo the charcoal, you lose flavor and you'll really yes. fuck up the wine. So he did a pass through for us real quick and then handed it to us. And literally it was like two different wines, like side by side. It looked like two completely different wines. It was Tasted amazing. relatively the Tasted, same. Yeah. yeah. It really was amazing what a little bit of charcoal filter did. It's interesting that, uh, yeah, because people would use charcoal to get the coloring out. And obviously if you use too much, the other crazy method is the blending method. So that's basically the third one. That's where you take an actual white wine and then you just add red juice to it. So the crazy thing about that one is, and I, I have done this one. I am absolutely guilty of doing this one. I took a Sauvignon Blanc that I thought was more red fruit driven, which is really unique for a Sauvignon Blanc. So we decided to make a rosé out of it and we added a, uh, a really just a, a Nebbiolo that we used from Arizona that we were just like, well, we don't want to make it as a red. So we added it to it and it gave it its coloring and tan instruction. It was pretty tasty. It's actually really illegal in a lot of countries. Really? Most there's a lot of places that straight up out France straight up outlaws it. America, again, it's America. Do whatever you want, pay your taxes, we're good. And a few other places it's more of like a uh, it's it's hush hush, so therefore we don't really mention it or talking about it and they try and phase it out. I imagine Italy's not one of those places they don't care. <laughs> But yeah, that's those are the those are the three main ways of doing it. You have your maceration, your saunier, and then blending method. The only place in France that's allowed to blend is champagne, because yeah, if you're gonna make a you know a blanc de noir or something like that, or you know just their rosé versions, you're gonna want to use a little bit of red coloring in your blend from the pinot noir, pinot meunier. So interesting too is you know we were talking about different flavor profiles i think this is something we should actually just go through and taste different ones and try and pick them out sometimes i know how great you're picking at flavors but uh italian ones uh first of all the italian rosés are often called rosato they're not called rosé just what they the way they call it so it's like contales was a rosato uh um teradora's alianico was, ros was rosato is that so so italy does rosato america we say rosé but french clearly it's they're the original rosé. So does you think Spain, Portugal, and all those say rosé as well? And, yeah. and Italy's the only kind of offshoot? Leave it to Italians. <laughs> what did the French say? No, we're not doing yeah, that at all. Not going to play in that box. Yeah. But it says something like Alianica rosé, you know, you're going to have more darker flavors. You're going to have more cherries, orange zest, stuff like that. Whereas something like Provence style, it's more honeydew, melon, and lemons. Melons for sure. Yeah, melon is one thing that something I always get off of, like that honeydew melon yes. characteristic that's unmistakable. Like you think rosé and you're going to think you're going to get more cherries and strawberries, strawberries. And raspberries. The American ones, I get a lot of that yes, off of. When absolutely. you get to the Cabernet style, even the Pinot Noir styles, I get you get a lot of those cherry flavors. But when you get to a true Provence style, it has that melon characteristic, which is really unique. So I tend to find that California rosés have the, I call it store-bought strawberries. Like, you know how like out here we have strawberries at the store, but they're never ripe. They're never fully ripened. They're not that juicy, plumpy strawberry that you get. It's that underripe where you're like, oh, I'm eating a strawberry, but barely. That's kind of to me how California rosés um, can kind of come off. That underripe sort of red fruit versus Provence to me. Yeah, man, melon's the perfect way to put that because it does. Like this one that we're drinking, this I'm gonna butcher the hell out of this one. Let's oh yeah, we haven't game. we haven't talked about you and your pronunciations in like um, three four weeks. Yeah, we haven't. So either you're getting better at them, or we're just I'm just <laughs> ignoring it. <laughs> to be fair, though, we've done wines I have known and California, which is very easy. True. So for this episode, we're drinking a French Provence rosé and a Nebbiolo rosé from Italy. 
So the French one is <laughs> Esprit Gassier. And, I, and there's not like a French person in the room to tell me this one. So maybe if it's French, it's maybe Esprit Gassier. Yeah, we'll go with that. And obviously it's Cote de Provence. And then the Italian one's a DOC. It's a Nebbiolo one uh, from Iopa. So I-O-P-P-A. You don't pronounce the R traditionally with the French wine. So Gassier. Gassier. Go on. <laughs> no, I'm just letting you know. I'm sorry. I was pouring the wine. Oh, okay. So yeah, I, this one's from uh, Roman, Romanano Sessia. You ever heard of that? No, I have not, actually. I've never had their Piedmont wines at all. I was actually really surprised. Though I do know the importer. Something I do, and it's my first have everywhere I go. I grab a wine. First thing I do, I turn around and look at the importer. Yeah, all, this all one is time. imported by... Juliana. Juliana. Yeah, it's a really good importer. It's funny you said Juliana because I was going to go with Gaiuliana. <laughs> yeah, I've known Juliana Imports is, I believe, Synergy here in town is does all the Juliana stuff and their portfolio across the board is fantastic. That's definitely a Italian producer or Italian importer. I will get behind this. Uh, the Gassier is actually Wilson Daniels. So Wilson Daniels is a large conglomerate. They do a lot of big things. However, I will tell you, Wilson Daniels does some of the most expensive wines in the world. They're the big guys. They've got the big guns. Yeah, they're okay. the they're, they're doing the first growths in the Burgundies. Uh, that makes they sense. They have the, yeah. Which also makes sense because if they're doing those, they're probably getting at the little guys to then get the big guys as well. So I do know one thing about, so obviously this one is clearly all Nebbiolo. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, the Esprit Gassier is... Uh, if I remember correctly, uh, Sinsal Grenache blend. If I remember the tasting sheet that I got on it when they were at the store. Well, Provence is almost predominantly going to be Grenache with Sinso blended Syrah, in. Movedra maybe too. A little just bit, but it's just honestly, outside of Rome. honestly, you nailed it with those two. Like it really is almost always going to be Grenache with Sinso. Like that's their perfect blend. Which is such a, it's a unique thing that Provence is, so the two main areas, everybody who knows rosés from France obviously thinks of Provence, but the Languedoc Roussillon is the number one producer of all uh, rosé, and I believe they can use pretty much a bunch of stuff, but for the vast majority, you see Mavedra, Grenache, Sensal, some Cab, but the best thing about this is, is if you grow red grapes anywhere in the world, you can make a rosé, doesn't matter what it is, so you can only have, or you can have 3,000 different types of rosés around the world. So you can make anything from Gamay, Pinot Noir. If you're in uh, California, the Napa rosés I see are mostly Cab or, well, for the most part, Pinot Noir. But I see a lot of Cab rosé in California. And then obviously Oregon's going to be doing a lot of Pinot Noir ones. Something that we've been talking a lot about is social media and social media influencers and what's going on right now, especially with wine. There's actually wine people that are starting to pay social media influencers to post pictures of them drinking their wines. I went down the rabbit hole and started looking at Rosé, and it's rosé with a the the, the actual little, accent. What do they call it? The tilde or the accent? Yeah, whatever it is yeah. over the topic. Because if you actually just put rosé or rose in Instagram, you're going to come up with 31 million pictures. Right. <laughs> of actual roses. No, that's what yeah. it is. It's right at 31 million pictures. There's a lot of people that type that as rosé because people just don't know how to put the little the accent. Yeah. Uh, but if you actually type it correctly, right now on Instagram, there's over 3 million pictures of rosé. I clicked on it and I checked it and almost every single picture was somebody that was 30 or younger drinking it. It wasn't old people. It was young people. There were videos. There was people at Coachella with bottles of rosé. It's really becoming this gateway drug in the wine for millennials. Maybe this is what we need to do to get millennials drinking 
Cabernets and Chardonnays and everything in the future. Introduction through yes. rosés. It's not, for me, you know what my introduction was? Boone's Farm. Strawberry Hill. Sun yeah. Peach. Dude, I make Razzle Dazzle. It's a strawberry-based uh, rosé. Yes. But, and, and it's like my number two selling wine. W- but when I was young, we didn't have a style of wine like this. And honestly, most rosés are $20 or less. It's a ton of flavor in something that looks like it has almost no flavor, if that makes any sense. Because I think... You know, people who drink a white wine won't be... They know what the flavor is. The Chardonnay, the Pinot Grigio, the Sau Blanc, they know the flavors. A rosé, you don't know what the flavor is going to be till you taste it. Because if you drink Nebbiolo, and then you go try a Nebbiolo rosé, you're going to be like, wow, that's not the same thing at all. You get Provence, and it's you don't know what that is. People who are drinking Provence rosé have no idea that it's, you know, all these different grapes making it up. I will say just to kind of inter- jump in right here real quick, that if you are trying different rosés and you're not going down the sweet path, they're going to be semi-similar as rosé. Yes. Whereas if you just say red wine, because we're red, white, and rosé. We're, we're, we're generalizing to yeah. large categories. From now on, we're always treating rosé as if it's its own category. But if you're having a, a white wine and you're somebody who goes to the store and you're like, I don't know much about wine. I'm going to buy a white wine. And you one day buy a Chardonnay. And you're like, oh, this is a big oaky butter bomb. I can barely drink this. It's not refreshing. The next day, you buy a New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, and it smells like cat piss and gooseberries, and you're kind of freaked out. Then you try rosé, and you're like, wow, this is easy drinking. It's not aggressive. It's not oaked. It's not tannic. It's it's refreshing. refreshing. Though there's going to be nuances and differences, it's not as wide of a spectrum, really, as white wine or even red wine. Rosé, I think, is a tighter spectrum as long as you cut out the sweet crap. Yeah, because unfortunately with the sugar level, it's going to force things all to kind of taste the same for the most part. And I think most producers don't make a sweet one. It's not, it's not the style. Most, it's, it's, true. It's but the most white people Zimindel. might be drinking them. It's the old style rosé. It's the old blush. It's the yeah, old... That's the, that's the trick. It's the blush. Because you and I both know what we love of Italian wines, especially like you could sit there and say most Chiantis aren't these things, but originally when most people in America were drinking Chianti, they were drinking Carlo Rossi or the Wicker Basket. And that's not most Chiantis, but it was what most people were drinking. So my thought is, is and it's clearly declining, and it's kind of cool to see the decline of it, you see that sweet white Zinfandel disappearing. It clearly it's has. It's dying because the people who drink it are dying because they're old <laughs> and they're not listening to this podcast. So, oh, well. But everybody else who's all of a sudden walking into a place and they're trying wine for the first time, probably depending upon their parents and grandparents, they walk in and go, what's a rosé? And they try this, what we're drinking. They might go, oh. Well, it's 90 degrees out. That's really refreshing and fantastic, especially if they're trying it now because they just maybe they never had the parents that drank the white Zinfandel or anything like that. Well, here's here's the difference. It's the difference between walking into a convenience store and buying a pink wine versus walking into a total wine, a Bevmo, an AJ's, a wine shop and walking up to the rosé section. If you walk up to a rosé section in total wine, I think it's gonna be 98 percent. You're not going to find a sweet wine in there. Yeah, absolutely not. Yeah. All right, so only because I spent a lot of time doing shelving stuff for our store with with Total Wine, and I'm only using Total Wine as an example. Total Wine doesn't; I, they don't have a rosé section. They just it's in their country. It's they just, do now. They have a giant rosé. They area. do now. It's now, huge. now because of the year, or excuse me, time of the year. At AZ Wines, we have a rosé section. 
at Phoenix Wines, they had a rosé section. At the shops, you're right, they definitely now have rosé sections. It's one of the few things where I definitely want people to treat it, and I'd love to educate people more about it, saying every rosé is very great. Uh, it's it's not sweet, it's dry, and the flavors are unique, but you have to treat it like a red wine in a way. Like There are some places you may not like. Trying these two, I am really, really liking the Provence more than the Nebbiolo, but the Nebbiolo has way more character to it. The Nebbiolo, to me, this one has a unique... It's got a funky nose, but there's tan into it. Like You can actually get a little grippy with it. But for some reason, this Provence in my mind, and this is clearly just built up in my mind, I'm feeling like I'm sitting outside on a porch just enjoying a nice, light, easy glass of wine. And the Nebbiolo has more character to it, I guess. But I, I'm kind of liking this Provence one a little bit better. And I'm telling you, like tonight before we started recording, uh, we went up to a local beer bar and sat around. It's a place that serves craft beers from all over the world. There was a girl sitting at the bar just crushing glasses of rosé. You saw her across the bar, too? Oh, yeah. yeah I saw her, too. But I think what, everybody saw her. <laughs> but what was she, she's just sitting there crushing, crushing glasses of rosé at a beer bar. And so as a buyer, if there's buyers out there listening, don't be afraid. Especially even if you're a brewery. I always said one of my best accounts in this entire state for Pinot Grigio was Four Peaks Brewery. Because people often go there. They want to be in that social environment. They want to be around chill people. Sometimes you go to a wine bar... You're around some maybe snobby people or people that are acting a little like hoity-toity where you can go to a beer bar wearing shorts and a t-shirt and just being relaxed, but you want to drink some rosé. You want to drink some Pinot Grigio. Or you're in a group of five friends. One person maybe is gluten-free. Maybe one person doesn't drink beer. They want to drink wine. So going to a brewery, every brewery should always have a wine list, in my opinion, or every beer bar should have a, a good little wine list. Yeah. Uh, up at this little place by my house, they have... You know, they have a great little rosé. They also do serve frosé. I saw that, too. I saw the frosé thing on there. Which became kind of popular over the last couple of years to the point where wineries are serving frosé. You're seeing it all over the place. So essentially, they're putting rosé into a slushy machine and serving it that way, which is kind of brilliant. It's It really is. Especially in a state that's hot and hot for nine months a year. So I got a random question. What do you think is the rosé of beer? Uh, the champagne of beer? The champagne of beer. <laughs> I know what that is. Well, everybody knows what that is. <laughs> no, but if you think of where rosé is in the wine industry, it's kind of, in, it's not intimidating. It's just like, I don't know if I want it. There's a huge misconception. Sours, maybe? Maybe fruit, fruit you beers? You know what? I could see that. Sours. I could definitely see that they're, with sours, maybe. Because they're, re they're refreshing. Especially you get like like a goat, sorry, not even sours, gosés. The G-O-S-E. Like I drink the blood orange gosé from Anderson Valley, or they, yeah. they have the briny melon. And it, it's got that kind of fruity characteristic, a lot of zip. It doesn't have that necessarily like funky lager characteristic. It's not deep like a stout. I could see that kind of that fruit beer being that in-between hybrid gateway into drinking certain beers. Four, Peaks, Four Peaks Peach. Is that considered a... That's a fruit beer. call it a gose? No, no, no that's, that's a fruit beer. That's actually a, an, a peach ale. So I love that beer, though. And if that's what... It, it, if the fruit beers, as I just had a stroke there, if the fruit beers are your your gateway into certain beers, then maybe that is what rosés are because it, it, it makes sense. Like it's just so tasty. It's so easy. It's so refreshing. And it's not this like 
hop driven thing. Like I think hops are the oak of beer kind of a thing. Like you add it to do certain things to it. But yeah, it makes sense for a fruit beer to be that kind of in a way. You're a 20 something person who's never really drank beer. You want to start getting into it. You want something to Bud Light is not your in- entry. Paps is not your entry. There's yeah, those are the IPAs. Pinot Grigios of IPAs beer. are too much. You almost need that little fruit beer, or something that's subtle. And to me, like the Gosets are really nice because they're it's like a, it's actually a salted fruit beer, basically, is what it comes down to. I mean, the most time you and I sit down and have four peaks uh, peach ale is when it gets hot outside. Oh my god, it's it's so refreshing. I come home after like a hot day, pop that peach, drink one of them, maybe two, and it's just like it's refreshing. <laughs> Hashtag pop that peach. <laughs> God, it's so good, though. <laughs> Don't Google that. <laughs> with your safe settings. Yeah, with your safe settings. <laughs> or around your mother. <laughs> so I always like talking stats while we're just talking about wine and drinking wine. We'll get into a little bit more about these two wines here in a minute. Put some stats on me. So United States wine industry. 2018, final stats. United States sold $70.5 billion in wine. <laughs> Jesus, I love it. 23.3 of that was imports. Roughly 33%. That's You know what, though? I think that's really cool because while most people won't take American wine outside of the U.S., I love that we have the ability to try everything else. You know, French, Italian, Spanish. I, I've recently... Oh, where was I? Uh, that little itty-bitty shop. Uh, I'll come to you later. Anyways, they had they had two Georgian wines just because somebody randomly had one. They were like, oh, we got to try this one. Like, where else in the world are you going to get Georgian wine outside of Georgia? And I'm not talking about the state. I'm talking about the country. <laughs> so the United States sold 408 million nine-liter cases last year. Is that just a standard 12-pack? So so nine liter cases are 12, 750 milliliter bottles. That's so weird that they call it nine liter cases. It, it's very of- important because that's the way the stats are run. Because think about it, if you're going to sell a case of Magnums, there's typically six pack cases. It's everything is translated. When I get stats from my distributors, when I'm working with my Vegas distributors and I'm like, how many cases did you sell last year? Everything is calculated to nine liter cases. Okay. So... It's intriguing only because some people I've do seen six three, packs. Yeah, as I say, there's six packs. Some people do three but, packs. But so so people that are doing three packs, you're going to skew the numbers. But that's a th- that's two point seven five or two point five basically. Right. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't work. So, so based on wine stats, you have to sell four three bottle cases to be one case in the stats. But wouldn't it just, nine liters is the is the universal number for a case? of wine sold in the United States. That's so weird to me. That's so only because then if you have, you know, a magnet, like I don't understand why they just don't say bottles because the bottle is 750 and it's universal. So they would just say, well, we sold a case. Well, a case is 12. Therefore we sold 12. Well, if you sold a Magnum or excuse me, a six pack of Magnums, you could then still say a case. Correct. That's why it's, it's, it's translated into nine liter cases. I, 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 I it, it's, it's just kind of weird. This to is me. how, this is how us sales reps cheated our promotions. Because if we had a case promotion, they said whoever sells the most cases of this gets you know a hundred dollar bonus. You sold the the magnums. the magnums that came in a one single case yeah. because you're like I just sold forty two cases of magnums, but it was only forty two magnums. Whereas something like Protatory, those are actually boxed in six liter cases. So if you or sell six, a nine six, liter six bottle, it's a case technically. What is a nine liter Jerobomb or something? So if you sold one of those, that technically counts as a case. It's yeah, it's just the way that everything translates. So nine liters is the universal thing. You have to do something just for stats and numbers and taxes, and I think it actually comes down to taxes. That would make sense because you're you're paying based on liters. 
and yeah. a typical case is nine liter cases. Liter metric. Wine's always in liters, seven hundred fifty milliliters. Yeah. So yeah, metric. Yeah. Yeah. We always okay. said we always said if like every everything in this country is freedom numbers except for drugs and alcohol. Yeah. If you ever wanted to put America on the metric system, just you know have everybody sell weed. <laughs> yeah. Or or drink wine. Or drink wine. Yeah. Booze. I yeah, mean, by the way, we have a, a liter rosé bottle for like 10 bucks at the shop. And it's really funny because I'll, I'll tell people, I'm like, yeah, you know, we have this, this, and this, and there's a liter. Like, I actually tell people it's a liter, and they're kind of like, wait, what? Who makes liter bottles? And I said, these guys and a Gruner Vetliner are the only two people I could think of that do liters. Yeah. And obviously cola. Something like that Gruner, the um, Burgons, Gruner, one liter bottles, they are sold in nine packs. To, to cases to restaurants to, to make it yeah. a case. Okay. If you buy a case of that, that's got to be a really funky looking box. So I said 408 million cases sold in the United States. That's it was crazy. It's up 1.2%. That's a case of wine almost per citizen of this country. And let's assume 20% of this country doesn't drink. Uh, the average American consumes 11 liters of wine per year. We are we are somewhere between. That's not a lot in my mind. Because no, but dude, the average, we do that in like a weekend. <laughs> the average the average Frenchman drinks forty liters of wine a year. Oh damn! We are we are we are the number one wine consuming country in the world in overall consumption as a country, but not per but capita. Per capita, we're located between Georgia and Moldova. Dude, that's crazy. Yeah. But I'd like to see the numbers on beer and liquor get thrown into. That's that what skews us. We we're, we're, we're we've always been a liquor, a liquor country. country. We've been we're Jack Daniels. You know, look at all the yeah. middle America. Like it's moonshine. It's yeah. This is this is a it's a liquor, liquor country. driven country yes. for sure. More states produce liquor than bake wine. Yeah, I believe that with the amount of bourbon and whiskey. All, yeah. yeah, all through the Midwest, I don't Tennessee, oh all that. God, I mean, yeah. So let's continue real quick. So out of the 408 million cases, 325 of them, 325 million were sold retail. What is that? Like Safeway, Vons, store, yes, every, 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 retail. So not direct to consumer. We, we, call, the, this, the we, we call this off-premise. They were yeah. sold in off-premise locations. Not straight from a membership nope, to your I'll house. I'll get to that stat too. 77 million cases were sold on-premise. Meaning somebody walked into the winery oh, and bought it straight from nope, them? That's a restaurant. Uh, okay. Restaurants are on-premise because you're consuming the product on-premise. Does that Off-premise means you're coming home with it. Does that include everything brought? Like if you went to a sporting event and they sold wine at that sporting event and you drank that's it in that stadium, that's on-premise? Okay. On-premise is consuming it on-premise. You, you drink it the second you buy it, Correct. basically. You're not, you're not allowed to leave with it, typically. Okay, you're not allowed to leave with it. Correct. And 6 million cases direct-to-consumer. Wow, that number is so low. 6 million cases that one, DTC. That surprises me only because from somebody who looks at our winery stats in the wine industry, as a winery, that number is exploding because more people are buying direct from the winery and being shipped to their house. But to say that on a national scale with what people buy at a Safeway or like a store. I don't know where you're at. It could be a Vaughn, Safeway, Kruger, Kroger, whatever. Yeah, the everything. Yeah. Costco, The little shop, the Total Wines, the, the mom Bebos, and pop, like Nina's Market yeah, on the corner, everything. Walmart, whatever. The fact that it's 6 million out of, what'd you say, 408 million? Yep. Dude, that's not even, that's 1.4% barely. And that's Wine Club is direct to consumer. That's crazy. That's that blows my mind. Now, does that include like the Wall Street Journals, you think, maybe? 
You know the, how that because nope, they're technically that, that, nope, wonky? Nope, that's off premise. Really? Yes. Direct to so, consumers winery direct. Winery direct. Yes. Straight from that six million to your wine house. club wine. Six million cases of wine club wines got that shipped. That seems so little. That all right. So from somebody who makes wine and works with a winery and goes to Napa and Sonoma, that actually blows my mind at how low that number is. Why? I that's to, insane. That's why I wanted to talk to you about these. That's because, nothing, man, dude. Right. That's Tesla numbers. <laughs> all right. So here, here's this is what's really gonna blow you away. So. 325 million cases were sold off-premise, retail, yeah. in 195,000 locations. This is 195,000 national liquor licenses that can sell off-premise. 195,000 locations. So, right. so uh, of, of the 77 million on-premise, so sold on restaurants, that was to... 373,000 locations. I'm amazed that there's 77 million restaurants, bars, places that people can drink at. <laughs> well, no, 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 no. 373,000 locations. Oh, I'm sorry. What was the 77 million? 77 million cases. Oh, I'm sorry. I was like, damn, there's 77 million places to drink at? <laughs> so, so, so there's twice as many locations that are on-premise than off-premise. There's more restaurants than retail yeah, that's- by two to one. However, retail dominates five to one. Yeah, but think about this. You go into a restaurant, you get a bottle, maybe two, maybe two at most. You go into a wine shop, how often do people walk out with just one bottle of wine? They usually take two or three for the weekend. They have a party. And I also, I'd like to see the daily stats. I would be willing to bet that out of those numbers, 40 plus percent is bought on Friday. I very rarely go to retail so I can buy at home, drink at home. I don't really drink at home. We drink it like maybe for dinners, holidays, whatever. But most of my wine that I consume is out in public, like buying yeah. wines at restaurants, being wines out. Plus, I'll be honest, restaurants probably shoot themselves in the foot because they're marking up three X's. And nowadays, consumers are smarter than ever before. And they can Google it. They can look at it. They can, find, they can go to a restaurant and be like, wait a minute. Wine searcher. This wine sells $36 nationally. Dude, you're hitting on a subject to me that is so spot on because it blows my mind. And you and I have had this conversation a million times where we walk in and we're like, oh my God, how are they charging that when I can go on the phone? And it's one thing to walk in and be like, it's a $30 bottle and on the menu it's $45. You and I know the wholesale is $20 and it's $60. I'm like, dude, I don't want to buy this wine just because out of principle we could... We'll have dinner, go home, and drink three of those bottles at that price. And I think that's what's really hurting those numbers. Like, I'm, as I'm looking at these, I'm thinking if restaurant markup was not as high as restaurant markup, they could probably sell 20, 30% more cases. Mm-hmm. Oh, I 100% agree. I also think DU, DUI laws really hurt it in America. That's one of the things we've always talked about. So the Italians are always like, why can't you sell Amaro? Why can't you sell after-dinner drinks? In Italy, every single person gets an after-dinner drink. Yeah, it's like free in some cases. You, fin- you finish your meal, you have a grappa, you have an Amaro, you have a fucking a brandy in a uh, espresso. Yeah, 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 yeah. We call them, I mean, it was an Italian speedball, but it's a... <laughs> That's what was like always our nickname for him. <laughs> I love that. An Italian ca- speedball. Ca- Cafe Coretto. Hashtag Italian speedball. Yeah. Uh, Cafe Coretto is what they call him. All right. And this is definitely a skewed, biased opinion on it. And I, I have my opinions on DUI laws in general. That being said, in a state like Arizona, that makes sense. Because if you're drinking in this state, and for who, people who have never been to Phoenix, this is probably one of the top five cities, if not the top city, where... You'll go have dinner 45, 50 minutes away, and now you have to make that 50-minute journey back. If you're in New York, 
well, not New York City because you're not really going to drive, but in most places you're going within five minutes of your house probably. In Phoenix, you're not. You're definitely taking an adventure. And 20 minutes on a road is very different from three to five minutes on a road. Oh, my God. You're so right. Like, if you live in L.A., you're you're going to cab because there's no place to park. There's yeah. no place. like. Also, you're stuck in traffic, so you're moving at four miles an hour. Or, so you're not doing 60 down a freeway drunk. Or if you're in New York City, you can walk one mile in any direction, and there's... 700 restaurants you're walking by like every <laughs> 70 bars yeah. every day you, no matter what i'm gonna go north today by one block and you walk by 40 restaurants yeah so but you can't do that here like i can't walk to the end of the block and go to a restaurant we don't have them like everything is so spread out in phoenix yeah and i will say and i know this from personal experiences as i uh from working in my bars and working in my wineries i always try to encourage people to take an uber uh, I like how you say Uber, by the way, not cab. We used to be, take a cab, take a cab. You don't say, I say an Uber. You, but you don't say Lyft. It's, yeah, I don't say Lyft. I say Uber. And it, but I mean Lyft. It's kind of like Kleenex. It's not a Kleenex. It's a facial tissue, but right. I say Kleenex. It's, it's not a Frisbee. It's a, it's a flying disc. It's not a Post-it note. It's a sticky paper or a sticky pad or whatever it yeah. is. Yeah. So oh, I never I, thought that Post-it notes. Yeah. You know, man, it sucks. But the reality is, is, you know, probably two out of five people are going to drive home. And I know where they live. And I'm like, man, that dude is driving far. He's close for Phoenix terms, but it's still a 15 to 20 minute drive. And so people will have a bottle of wine with their friends or family at dinner. They're not going to get that after dinner drink. They're not going to always not going to have the after dinner. drink. They're not necessarily going to get that second bottle. They'll go home and have it at home. Do you think that's why we don't really have dessert sale, dessert wine sales? You know, ice yes, wine, ports, things yes. like that in this yep. country. Amaros no, don't do well out here because nobody has that last that last Yes, whatever exactly that's what it comes down to we're in other countries it's tradition to have an after-dinner drink and talk and chat here the also brandies the cognacs the amaros have you i know you haven't been overseas a lot but overseas when you finish your meal nobody ever rushes you out they don't drop a check unless you go okay. so and so and, they, and you have to ask for a check you could sit there for two straight hours with your friends and laugh and drink cocktails whatever no one's going to drop a check in america the second you finish, that server's like, I'm your cashier whenever you're ready to cash out because they want to flip that table for more tips. Oh, okay. All right. Now you nailed what I was going to ask you because I was thinking of it more from a – because I, I have been enough overseas to understand how certain things work where you do have a very comfortable – I think restaurants and servers approach it to that. They're there, and that table is theirs all night. Like they're just assuming nobody else is going to sit there. Versus America, they're like, well, we need to block this time off for this time off for this time off. Because you're right, it is a turn and burn. And unfortunately, but I think this ties in, I think on a pie chart of why this is bad, we already talked about this. Servers don't care. They want to go. They just want their tips. They want to be out. They want to go to the next place. So you have bad service. You don't get those after dinner drinks. Your DUI laws come into play. Your driving distance comes into play. It's a turn and burn from the restaurant. They're looking at numbers, bring these things in versus the Italian guy down the street or the French cafe is like, you know what? We're not paying a lot to it. Therefore just hang out. And by the way, when we, you and I hang out at a restaurant and we go through something as we're getting near the end, I make it a point to look at the server and be like, we're going to get more like just, we're not going to rush this, but I promise you I'm going to tip you well. And I think maybe that helps. But that's just you and me. We're wine people. We know these things. And the average consumer, the man, they're ready. They're like, please leave. Please, please, please. Like, you're killing my tips by you just sitting here. In France and Italy, they're paid by the hour. They don't give a shit how many times they turn the table. Here, they don't tip you, too much. You get two, maybe three turns of the night. And if somebody gets a $6 
after dinner drink and lingers for another 45 minutes, that might keep them from getting that last seating, which might be 33% of their salaries taken away. Yeah, it's one. Th- if you're at a table that seats six people and there's two at it because you just had a weird time where two people are sit down and a six top walks in and that table hasn't got out, that's $100 you lost in tips mm-hmm. because that two top did not leave. Versus in another country, they're like, well, it doesn't matter. Like, If you get a tip, dude, that's actually a real bonus. Like, so- It's just like, oh, cool, I got a tip. So why would you recommend an after-dinner drink? You want to recommend, I'm your cashier, cash out, because I want to turn this table. Which also makes me wonder now, a little bit, you think restaurants are also adding the fact that their server is not getting paid what they want, so if you throw in a $25 after-dinner drink, they know they're going to get a $5 tip on that drink, because, you know, 20% being rule of thumb. So the restaurant marks it up even higher so that not only do they get the profit on it, but they know that the server will get a little extra money to yeah. keep the server happy. A, a lot of restaurants don't even push them. It's not a big deal. They don't have, they'll, they'll, they'll have, you know, Eola Hills, you know, Late Harvest Sauvignon Blanc. They'll have a port. They'll have this underneath. Four months. One ten year. One ten year tiny port and that's it. And four months later, the guy is still inventorying the same bottle. It's that same one port that, and I was with a couple of my dad's friends. We were in town. We were at uh, uh, Steaks 44. And him and I were looking at the dessert menu because a, a good friend of my dad's, he's a he's an after-dinner dessert guy. And he he looked at the menu and went, dude, I really want to get a port. And I said, oh, you? All right, let's get a port. Dude, we looked over the whole menu. He was like, really? Like, all they have F- is a... Fonseca 10-year. Yeah, and it's not even a 10-year. It's a late bottle vintage port. So we're like, that fucking bottle's been open forever. Yeah, 10-year tiny port for 30 bucks. And in a skill in for like $80. And then they listed like 12 Amaros. Dude, like... That's the menu, and this was this was a known, you know, after dinner kind of like people will spend money for it. But once again, if you are having a after dinner drink at Steak Forty Four, you are not flipping a table to put down four more dudes to get another bottle of wine, four more tomahawks, four more sides of asparagus and cru- truffle mac, and <laughs> truffle mac else. and cheese and yeah. lobster bit. Yeah, that's a thousand dollar tab for your twenty five dollar after dinner drink. Like, that's come crazy. on, flip that shit, and that's that's just the American restaurant. And that's why I think it's tough to sell that stuff here. That's got to be so hard for people who come across the seas and see this. And I mean, it's got to be the same thing with rosé when people are putting uh putting it on their menu. They're looking at it, going, "Man, that's fantastic," but. I'm not going to be able to sell a rosé at dinner. So therefore, I'll stick with my menu brand people. Because this, if I saw this on a menu now, this this French, this Provence one, I would for sure get this with some food. I'd be the first thing I'd actually drink in some cases. Right, but so I'll never see that on a menu. So let's go back to this. We haven't really talked much about these exact brands. So let's talk about the uh, Gossier real quick. Right, and then we'll go back to the Nebbiolo. Let's do so that. What, so what are your thoughts on it? All right. First thoughts. So affordable. This, so this wine is sixteen dollars a bottle. I'd say retail is going to be between sixteen and twenty around the United States. Sounds about right. And we're a, we're a tad on the high side for uh, this one. So yeah, sixteen ish. It, it is bottled with cork. It has a screen printed label, which I do really. It's a very pretty. It's label. a beautiful label. It's got flowers all over. I like the screen printing on it. It doesn't seem cheap. Rosé is getting a little gimmicky. You got some like naughty girl rosé and yeah. some of these like. They're kind of yeah. cheesy. I saw one called Babe Rosé. Yes. You're getting a whole bunch of those popping up right now. And lots I, of cans. Lots of cans right now. And I worry that that might hurt the market because if you start putting a bunch of critter stuff out there, like, like the Australians. Here's the other thing. Like you were talking, you don't see the color when it's in a can. Yeah, true. So that, you don't know what you're pouring when it comes out. And I don't think millennials care as much about it. Like this, that younger generation is willing to just try it and make their own judgment. They're not going to go by some dude in Ivory Tower who gave a judgment on the wine. 
fine. So between both so, of these, this label hands down wins. It sticks yes. out. It's beautiful. It's got multicolors. The Iopa is your standard. Here's the shield of the family, the signature of the wine. It's actually, a, honestly, it's a bland whatever label. Like the, the label doesn't stick out. They're clearly basing it on where it's from, the facts Nebbiolo. But to go to the, the Provence one. So I'm getting on this, I'm getting more minerality than I am fruit. The fruit's there when I taste it, but on the nose, I'm getting like this this hitting in the back slaty characteristic with like hidden like little bits of fruit to it. So if I was somebody, if, if this was blinded to me in a black glass, I would assume this is a white wine. I really would. This comes off to me like a white wine, but it's soft on the nose. It's not astringent. It's not bitter. It's not hitting senses that you hate. It's a very approachable nose. The taste, though, it's fantastic. It's light. The acidity's there. It's refreshing. My palate doesn't feel like it's getting beaten up at all. There's almost no tannin to it. Color is super pale salmon at best. I think this, if I were to pour this for a bunch of people, this would probably be the wine that everybody drinks and just drinks it without saying anything. They, everybody would love it. Nobody would hate it. And people like, oh, this is really nice. I think this is, I'd keep drinking this. And then the three bottles you bring would be gone in immediate, immediately. I mean, I mean, when you hold this wine over a white piece of paper, it, the meniscus is an inch long and it's completely clear. Yeah. There's no, there's no color whatsoever on the meniscus of this. It's crazy. And it's, it's big meniscus. I mean, it's unique. Now, to me, it's that salmon color. When you look at it at a glass, it has that full salmon color. Now, for me, I get so much honeydew. It's not a Melons. cantaloupe. It's not a watermelon. It's not a lot of... It's, it's that green honeydew melon. Fresh cut, vibrant. I mean, I can't get past that on the nose. But you saying that makes me smell that. So, blind. I got minerality only because there was a... There's a, uh, there's a tinge of this thing that's in the back and I, I don't know how to define it but as that's why I like talking to you about this because you pick out smells way better than I do and when you say melon my brain immediately went to honeydew it wasn't cantaloupe it wasn't watermelon my first thought in my brain was oh that rind of a of a, a honeydew and it actually now that you say that it almost has almost like a bitter watermelon it's the rind. bitterness it's that it's the white part yes but with a little bit of the watermelon left when, on when, there when you taste that when you get down towards the rind that taste is yes almost in the nose you of know this. like you eat past the watermelon you uh -huh. get, and then all of a sudden you get like 75 percent watermelon and 25 percent of the white rind part and you're like oh all right i'm done with this like that i'm that, smelling that, that in this yes. wine. Also, I'm Definitely. smelling, as far as flowers, it's not roses. It's not violets. For me, it's tulips. It's spring, like it's, tulips. It's spring flowers. Ooh, for me. I like that, though. Spring. Yes. This smells like spring. Yes, without a doubt. That was spring. my first thought. This yes. literally smells like spring, spring to me. That's why, to be honest, this would be a perfect Easter wine. Even the package on this, this is such you a perfect You know what? You Easter close wine. your eyes, you smell it, and all of a sudden you're picturing the multicolored light eggs and stuff like that. I don't yeah. smell November. I smell, I smell April. Easter. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, this smells like the month of April. Like, is it? <laughs> can I put that on a tasting note? Like, it smells like April. It smells like April. Yeah, it smells like April. I mean, that's one of those little things that I love about this show and us talking about wines because we talk about it in things that you know jig a little thing in our brain that make us think about yeah. it. I'm not trying to write some story for the Wine Spectator magazine. If you tell me that it smells like certain things, I'm like, I don't smell that shit. Well, you tell me spring, I know the the smell of spring. 
So here, when you said this smells like April or it smells like spring, when you said the the flower thing and I said it smells like spring, my brain immediately went to sitting at the Phoenician when they did their um, their brunches amongst the flowers and the grass and everybody's yes. eating and you're outside with totally. fresh air. I didn't, it really wasn't a smell. Like when you said spring, my brain went to places I'd been for spring. And to me, okay. But now so, I'm having a weird flashback of some family so say, shit back uh, in the day. But I would say more wildflowers, not roses. That's the thing is roses are so very defined Garden. Like a garden, like a like a garden of thing, not like a specific road, like just a garden that you would walk through. Because violets have a very dark flavor. To me, I smell violets and stuff like um, zivendels and certain things have a violet smell. Or I smell the roses or dried roses or dead roses in Nebbiolo. Yes, this is that vibrant, fresh. It's opening. Bl- it's it's a budding. Bloom. It's, it's blooming. A blooming. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. That's why these things are fun, man. Because it's it's, I like a rosé like this because it's more memory than smell kind of driven. Like smelling this, like this just makes me happy. This is, man, it's springtime. The cool weather went away. It sucks. We're in Arizona. So it went immediately from cool, refreshing to fuck, it's hot outside. (laughs) I could give this to somebody that doesn't really drink wine and it would be great. I mean, I could understand why people, this is the wine that the millennials are drinking because at our age, we didn't have this. It wasn't out there. It was, it was syrupy, sweet, coying, introductory wines or shitty rock gut that bums drank that we drank <laughs> no i'm mad dogs and mad fucking dog, yeah. well, mad dogs more liquor but I, I think of boone's farm yeah so this as it's warmed up is nice because bone cold like super cold is so refreshing like i would have pounded a whole bottle if this was colder but now that it's warm and opening up i'm like all right you know what it went from me chugging it to i sipped it over the last little bit as it warmed up so now the Nebbiolo. Now that we're there. All right. So the Nebbiolo, uh, I'll start. I, I'm i going to interlude real ahead. fast. Take I'm not going to... No, you could, you could talk about the wine, but I will say, being in the Italian wine import business for many, many years, not a single producer that I ever had made rosé that they gave us. Don Milano made one. You're right. So, But he it was not imported, and it was not available in the U.S. So I've only had... Really? I've only had one Italian Nebbiolo before tonight. And then San Reckoner here in town in Arizona. I think he'd make a fantastic one. When when he bought the property, it actually had Nebbiolo on it. And his first year, he made a Nebbiolo red wine. And he's like, that sucked. He was like, I was getting ready to uproot it. It was bad. We had this conversation, man. Dude, yeah. the rosé was And great. he just decided out of nowhere to make a rosé. I think it's the best rosé made in Arizona. Agreed. 100% agree. I can't remember. We had another Nebbiolo rosé from uh, GD Vira. GD Vira was the only Nebbiolo rosé we had. Now we have this one. The nose is funky. It, to me, comes off very fruity. Like, this is where I get the red fruit, the strawberries, the raspberries, but, like, a funkiness to it. Like, like that farty characteristic, that foot characteristic's kind of hidden back in there, which kind of means that it's kind of more red wine-driven. Um, kind of like the Barbaresco the other day where I sm- said it smelled like somebody farted and uh, moved their feet through it. This one is that immediately, and then immediately goes to like a ripe slash underripe strawberries and red fruits on the nose. So it's approachable, but it might make you hesitate a hair on it just a little bit. Like if you're a brand new wine drinker, you might kind of go, uh, I need to try this and drink it. And once you drink it, it's fantastic. It makes your mouth run, great acidity. It tastes like red fruit to me. You know, I get that strawberry raspberry on it, and there's actually tan into it. Like, it kind of has just this little amount of grip, kind of like a good Pinot Noir would have. So here's the unique thing about this wine, too, is that it's actually not a Piedmont Nebbiolo. I wouldn't imagine. Uh, 
what that's that's that region right it's, there in the back. It, it, Ramon. It, 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 it's Colinovarisi. Yes. Is where it's from. So uh, it says it on the back right there. Yeah. So Colinovarisi is actually going to be just due west of Milano, and it is basically halfway between Milano and Piedmont. It is actually, I think, in the region kind of a Piemonte, maybe more mountainous or more towards uh, the Alps. It is or more towards the ocean. Listen, look at this tiny little region on this. <laughs> All right. Yeah. It's a dot. It's a dot. It looks like they accidentally smudged the map. <laughs> but what's amazing about it is it actually is a DOC. Yeah, so yeah, we've got the DOC. Yeah, that was on. what shocked me. It's not an IGT. So the government actually has identified this as a quality rosé and put government regulations on to how to produce it. That's why I took this, because I saw GD Virat doesn't even have the DOC on it, if I'm not mistaken. It might, and I could be very, very wrong about that. I don't remember it being on there. This one did, which I thought was unique for being a rosé in Italy. Okay, so it is in the Piedmont region. There's 88 communes all together in this region. Okay. What's I, technically a commune? Is that what they call the, the, a village? Kind of, yeah. It's town. Towns. Probably towns. the best way to put it. Okay. So I like this as a as somebody who likes wine. I really like this. I think this wine as a rosé to somebody that I would give, I'd be a little, a little bit hesitant on it. I wouldn't give this to a brand new wine drinker. I would give this one, the the French one, the Provence one, for sure. I would bring that to parties and be like, you guys got to try this. I think you really like this, you know, especially now it's hot. I think the Nebbiolo is the one you bring for your wine geeky friends to be like, you got to try this. How cool is this? It's a Nebbiolo Rosé. Look at it. It says a little tannin. It has the funky characteristic on the front for like a millisecond that Nebbiolo has. And then boom, red fruit right in your face. So this region got its uh, DOCs in 1994. It is very similar with all the laws to Gatanara. Ah, interesting. So you the, get a little blend. The laws allow them to blend, blend in Uvarara, Croatina, Vespolina, which are the same varietals that are allowed to be blended into Fara, Gamay, and Gatanara. So it has Gamay being a region, not grapes. So so this is this is northern Piedmont, and this is gonna be very mountain-esque Nebbiolo. It's interesting. I, I learned something new tonight. I like that. That's the best thing about wine, man. You know more about Italian wine than anybody else and you just got a new little cool characteristic to it. There's and that's what wine can do. There's such unique this nose is so it's very distinct. Unique. Yes. It's complex in a for people who love wine, I think they would like this. I think the average consumer would love the French one. I think that French one will bring more people to the table to try more wine versus the Nebbiolo one is a wine geek's going to be like, dude, what a cool wine you brought, man. This is really fun. It just hit me what the flavor profile is. Like, slap me in the head. Can't mistake it. You ever collect, did you ever collect old school baseball cards or... I have basketball cards. Did it come with that stick of shitty ass gum? No. But do you know what I'm talking about? I'm thinking Bazooka Joe. That's it. You've had Bazooka gum. I had Bazooka. You know when you open up Bazooka gum? Ooh, okay, hold on. It is, to me, bubble gum on the nose. Not like... Oh. Right. <laughs> See? Yep. Yes. To a T. Like, it's that... Yes, ha hard, it's that hard bubble gum like with you, the the powdered like yes. sugar on the top. Oh my god, dude! <laughs> yes, 
I can't get past Holy it. Holy crap. Now that you say that, I'm not moving past it either. Because that's a funkiness. That gum was yes, funky. Yes. This is funky. This isn't this is the cheap bazooka bubble gum that has the old school cartoons yes. in the inside and the bad and it's gonna tear your it's gonna shatter your teeth when you bite it. And once you chew it, it has flavor for roughly thirty four seconds and then it tastes like nothing. Yeah, and you go to a dentist and they'd be like, Why are your teeth broken? Hey, bazooka Joe. I, you know, there's a fun fact that uh, Bazooka Joe, when they were in World War II, they made armor-piercing bullets out of Bazooka Joe gum, probably. I, I'm, it's crazy how one flavor can just dominate. And I, I literally spent an hour and 20 minutes trying to figure out what I smell on this, and it hit me so hard just now I almost fell off my chair. Dude, Bazooka Joe was one of my favorite gums to eat, but I... Gums. Gum to eat. But I swear to God, it was like... Somebody climbed Mount Everest, chipped off all the rocks from there, refroze it, and then made gum out of it. Yeah, there's like, there is still almost that melon, but it's a candied melon, and it's more like cantaloupe, like really super ripe, overripe cantaloupe. I can't get past the gum now that you're saying it. Dude, it's so defined. It's crazy. I like mean, it's, I, you could say cantaloupe, you could say underripe watermelon, you could say cotton candy, and I can't get past the but, gum aspect. By the way, notice this as I swirl it, there's an effervescence yeah. in there. There's still some bubbles. So, but the wine is not sweet. It doesn't have any sort not of... Sweet at not all. at all. There's no bubblegum... bone dry. When I drink it, there's no bubblegum flavors. It it's just throws up that Bazooka Joe nose. Yeah. That's why I was saying this wine is crazy. But this is this is a ro- this is a wine geeky rosé to drink with your... Like, look at it. You haven't even drank it yet. You're just sitting here smelling it, which I'm now doing too, versus that uh, this French one. Man, dude, I would have pounded this bottle in 10 seconds if I could. This is fun, man. But even on the palate, it's got a little like mild, mild strawberry flavors. Really juicy. Makes me salivate like crazy. It doesn't have quite the bubblegum on the on the palate. A little subtleness down the the last of the palate. The problem with that bubblegum is it was so sweet it would turn me off. Like it was like cloying fake sweetness. When you talk about natural sugar versus high fructose corn syrup, like kind of that difference when you taste something, this is what bazooka joe gum should taste like if it was done naturally with a natural flavor without the high fructose corn syrup there's a candy i'm trying to think of where and it's not a warhead because that's too sour but there's a sour bitter candy that i I just i cannot i can't nail it it's i have to go back into like the depths of my memory to find this flavor but there's a it's a sour candy that pops out, that hits me. It's like a sweet nose and a sour taste. And not a bad sour. It's not bitter by any means, but it just reminds me of a sour candy. Not like a Sour Patch Kid or anything like that, but... This wine has a lot more acid in it than the other one. A lot of acid. And I think that's what's counterbalancing any sort of possible sweetness that could be in there is that zippiness that it has. Because this wine is racy. This, to me, the first wine, the Gassier, is a great... If you ask me for a food pairing with Gassier, I would say pair with friends in a patio and a good conversation. Yeah. The other one, the Nebbiolo, I want that with food. There's so much acid in it, it would still go so fantastic with food. You could, you don't need the red wine for no. the food that you. You could actually drink this throughout yes. the entire course. And, and I could have fine. it with. I could have it with something even richer, even some of the fat, something like a, a oh, a, a, duck? A, a duck. Oh yeah, turkey. You, you finished my statement right oh, there. Oh yeah, <laughs> dude. I'm, I love this. This is this is a perfect food one. But you're right. The the difference between the Nebbiolo 
and the uh, the Provence one. The Provence one, you straight drink it. It's that's your friends, that's your conversation. That glass, the the French one, is the one you hold in your hand the whole time while you're moving throughout the party. You're talking to your buddies. You could be sitting in the pool drinking that, floating down the river, whatever, and you're drinking it. The Nebbiolo is you open that bottle when the food hits the table. Without and you guys were drinking this. That, that that even with some fatty meats, some charcuterie, fantastic. Dude, I would like Prosci- to try this with some pork. Oh, prosciutto, absolutely. Yes, without a doubt. That's a. a I love this stuff. That's why it's so fun to have something so vastly different made in a very unique style of wine. I'm glad we broke the wines down more at the end of the show also because it allowed it to warm up and kind of we could enjoy it a little bit and formulate our opinions and give our true opinions at the end because we always have our final thoughts. However, I think these wines really needed a little time to just sink in. I don't even think we need final thoughts on this one. I think we nailed all of it in this last little bit. No, I will say if I have a final thought, I want everybody to uh, jump on Instagram and follow us on Instagram. Yeah, start following us on our Instagram, spilling the truth. We're, we're posting a lot of really cool pictures. There's going to be a lot of wine travels coming up. I do want to say that uh, in the next couple episodes, we are going live. We're going to have some video, so you'll be able to find us on YouTube. And also, we're going to start doing live interactive tastings on some other platforms, such as Twitch. So keep in mind, if you want to see what's upcoming, what's coming out, follow me, Damien, on Twitter. You can find that through our website, SpillingTheTruth.com, or on the Spilling the Truth Instagram page, which is fantastic. Also, for those of you on Facebook, join that Spilling the Truth thing. Ask us questions. If you have questions on the wines we have today, reach out to us. We love getting feedback. Absolutely. And once we get the live streaming up and running, we'll definitely love to answer people's questions, no matter how weird they are about wine or whatever in general. We think it'll be more fun to talk to people and show people what we're doing, because while we'll do the Instagram and Facebook and Twitter with some cool pictures and we'll show you the coloring, if there's if there's questions that you have where you're like, man, I wish I knew a little bit more, something that we missed, we would love to answer it for you guys. Yeah, I'm stoked to go live. It's going to be a lot of fun. Live's going to be fun. Live's coming soon. A, a live show. It's going to be crazy. It's going to be really be chaos. Weird. I can't edit anything, yeah. so it's be a little more raw (laughs) (laughs) that's right it's gonna get real fun around here yeah all right man let's wrap this up yeah so hey everybody uh it's rose season enjoy it keep trying some new stuff and uh we can't wait to see you guys live on our new streaming platforms couple couple weeks it's coming soon coming awesome cheers winter is gone and uh (laughs) twitch stream is coming (laughs) i know according to game of thrones winter is here we've got one more (laughs) one more week of winter all right guys bye guys love you guys cheers